Why don't you take your Bibles and let's head to a passage that is an extremely difficult passage uh, as far as studying, reading, and just going through. And it's on the life of David. If you're not in the habit of being with us regularly on the Sundays, what we've been doing is a series on the life of David for several months. And we've been focusing on that uh, his life, the passage, verse, story by story, going through that on Sunday mornings. And this morning, or today, we had switched gears. And this morning, I just felt compelled to preach a message that was sharing the gospel and talking about um, what the Bible teaches about hell, answering, is it a real place? And so that shifted this study to this evening. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you're joining us as well on live stream, because this is a really difficult passage. And it's one of those that some have said, it must not have happened. It's so hard to explain. It's just, let's forget about it. And I got to tell you, honestly, as I was reading through and going through and preparing a couple weeks back, I thought, I don't want to preach that passage. It's just so strange. I want to just jump right over it. But uh, that's the time that you just sit back and go, wait a minute, there must be something here to learn out of it. And what it is, it's coming out of an event in David's life that we often don't hear about. It's like some characters that we know of or we read about in history. Certain things happen that it's kind of like a story that you never hear about, like this one. 1946, there's a Democrat running for a congressional seat, and in that campaign, the Republicans needed somebody to run against him because he was just seemed to be entrenched. And so they ran this advertisement in the local newspaper, wanted congressional candidate, with no previous political experience to defeat a man who has represented this district for 10 years. Any young man, resident of the district, probably, a, preferably a veteran, fair education may apply for for the job. Anybody know who applied and started his political career this time? No. Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. That was his first political gig is he ran and that's one of those stories you don't hear much about. But it's an interesting story. Then there's one that comes out of ancient history, Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid. He is a Roman poet, a very, very famous if you read those types of ancient writings and things. And what he did is one time he had a funeral where he invited many of the senators into his properties and did an entire funeral service, orchestra, mourners. They built a mausoleum on site. Now, his reason for doing it was tax purposes. Okay, when you study a little bit about the behind the story, is they had, in their taxing of the properties, they had one group that was exempt from paying property tax. It wasn't churches because they weren't around. Okay? It was cemeteries. So he decided that he would put a mausoleum on his property, invited all these senators in, and he had this funeral for his pet fly. And he had this whole occasion, and when they said this was a mockery, he was just doing it to, to... He won the case in court. And so his property was tax-exempt after that. Now, don't try it, you know, modern days. But here's another story. Okay, maybe some of you recognize the character right away. He was a Canadian military man. He fought in the World War II. And what happened, he was injured by friendly fire got shot several times, four times in the leg, one time in the chest, and his cigarette case deflected the bullets, so he survived that one. And then one of his hands, he got shot and lost one of his fingers. Anybody recognize the character right right away? Yeah, Scotty from Star Trek fame. Okay, Mr. Scott, beam me up. Okay, so one of those stories, and now next time you watch Star Trek, you're going to look for his hand, right? See where that is. And so you read these stories about people that are just kind of a weird little story about their event in their life. 
kind of that's what this story is. It's there, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to, to the Word of God, but it's one of those odd stories that we kind of look and say, whoa, you know, what, what, what's really happening? And what happens in this story in David's life, this account is really, really, really interesting. So let me read it through. If you haven't already, just follow along. And as we go through, you can gauge your responses of, wow. Here we go. Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered and said, It is because of Saul, for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not the children of Israel, but they were a remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver or gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shall you kill any man in Israel. And he said, What shall I say? What, What will I do for you? And they answered the king, The man that consumed us, that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coast of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. The king said, I'll do it. I'll give you the seven sons of Saul. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni, and a different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And David delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself upon the rock from beginning of the harvest until the water would drop upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on the carcasses by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done for her son and the other, the other men. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabeth-Gilead, which had been stolen from them, from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, hanged Saul and his sons after the battle, when the Philistines had slain Saul and Geboah. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, who was Saul's father. And they performed all that the king commanded. After that, the Lord was entreated for the land. What a story. What an interesting story. There's, there's a whole lot of questions that it raises, more than it answers. One of the first questions is, when did this happen? I'll say it right up front. I don't know. Neither do you. Nobody really knows for sure. 
here are some of the possibilities. Okay, we know that it had to happen after David had brought Mephibosheth into the palace. We know that for sure, because he doesn't turn Mephibosheth. He very clearly says he's not going to break the promise he made to Mephibosheth. Some say it's in the latter part of David's reign, which that seems to make sense, because this story is in that section of the latter part of his reign. But with that... Some will say it's right about, about Absalom's rebellion. Some will say it's in conjunction with it. Some say it's before the rebellion. Some will say it's after. Now, some will point out and they'll say that this is what Shimei was talking about. Remember when Shimei, David, is fleeing from Absalom, running in, out, of the, out of Jerusalem? Remember that account? Yes, no, are you with me? Encourage my heart that you remember some of this. Okay. So David's fleeing. Remember, Shimei is standing on the hillside and he is cussing, cursing at David, throwing sticks, throwing rocks and dust at David. And he accuses David of being a what type of man? Not only a son of Belial, but a bloody man. Some think this is what happened is that, uh, that Shimei is responding and saying, You killed a lot of Saul's relatives, some of his descendants. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, that Shimei in particular, I, I kind of lean that in its context where it's placed, it's in the latter part of his story, probably after the rebellion. But again, we don't know exactly when. What's we do, what it does raise is it tells us that a number of details are not clearly defined. We don't know when Saul killed off the Gibeonites. We don't know that. It's never recorded in Scripture. So this story doesn't tell us other than it happened sometime. We don't know when this event happened, when the Gibeonites wanted some type of restitution made. We don't know exactly when that was in David's life. We don't know why David picks these particular seven sons of Saul. We don't, that's never explained in the text. And we don't exactly know how they were killed. Your Bible indicated that they were what? They were hanged. Okay, that could be that type of hanging by noose, or more likely it was, it was nailed to the, uh, a crucifixion. Is probably hanging on a tree idea that Deuteronomy says, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. And that was a form of execution to show great disdain towards somebody. So this could be basically a a crucifixion, early form of it. But again, we don't know. We have more questions than we do. And yet, for all this, this que- those questions, these are the ones that come to my mind. How could David go through with executing Saul's son? That just seems odd to me, especially with the idea that Deuteronomy 24 makes the comment that it says that God will not visit the sins of the father upon a child. And so why are the children punished for a father's crime? That's raised. That's a legitimate question that you may have out of this passage. The the question comes up, why would God even allow and seem to point towards this, this type of an execution and then when it's all done, God now is entreated for the land. But before then, God was displeased and had a famine. But then it seems that once this is done, it seems like a loving God wouldn't allow this. That would be a first reaction that people have. So some have responded by saying this story probably isn't even true. It's not even true. And point out, one of the reasons they pointed out, some of the critics of, uh, of the account, they point out and they say, wait a minute, there is no record of the Gibeonites being killed by Saul, so maybe it didn't happen. And they'll point out that there is an error in this passage. 
supposedly, that the Gibeonites are said to be descendants of the Amorites, but we know from the book of Joshua and the earlier passages, they are actually the descendants of the Hivites. So there must be a mistake here. So maybe the whole account is bogus and somebody stuck it in at some point. Well, if that's the case, then what happens? Then all of a sudden, maybe any questionable account, we can just run and say, it doesn't fit. And then, left to anybody's whims or wishes, what can you do with Scripture? Yeah, you can tear it apart. You can drop passages of Scripture. So let's, let's just answer just real quickly that one question that the critics come up with and they say there's a mistake in the text. Well, the possibility, because here it says they're descendants of Amorites. Elsewhere it says they're the descendants of the Hivites. Well, there's one possibility that there's a mistake in the text. But if there's a mistake in the text, then it questions the credibility of Scripture as a whole. Because then, then we're saying we open the door for Pandora's box that the Bible may, may be filled with. Lots of error, okay? And you who uh, and uh, you and I who accept the idea that God's word is inspired and it is accurate, there's got to be a better explanation and a clearer explanation. And there is, okay? If you do a little bit of Bible study, the terms that are there's some terms used interchangeably to describe people groups back in those days. To clarify, the Amorites were those that were living in the region of the Promised Land when Joshua and the tribes had marched across the Jordan River and they're going to take over the land. There was peoples who lived in different regions. The uh, Bible makes it clear that the Amorites were in the hill country. Different groups, some were on the plains, some were in different fertile regions, but the Amorites were typically in the hill country. However, when in one of the other previous earlier passages describing the Amorites, we have a reference that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, when he is describing about how you're going to march into the land and you're going to have people oppose you. In verse 7 or 8, he talks about the Canaanites will oppose you. But then later on in that very same text, he makes the comment that because the Lord, some will murmur, because the Lord hates us, he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites. In talking to Abraham, God used that same terminology, Amorites, when he was describing Canaanites as a whole. And in Deuteronomy 1, he uses Canaanites and Amorites interchangeably talking about the same people. Does that ever happen that some people might might use another title for a group of people in a certain land? That they might use two different titles. Does it ever happen that they might call them U.S. citizens and another time they might call them Americans? Okay? And so, you know, and, and if we're going to be really technical, how many people are Americans? Not the number, but South Americans, North Americans. And so there, it, it's, it's clear if you just do a little Bible study that there was a time, and it did occur, that Canaanites were called Amorites, even though the Amorites were one of the distinct classes and groups of people. So it's no problem. It's, it's no grave issue in the text. It just means do a little bit of study and understand that they use some titles interchangeably that it happened. But there is a whole lot of lessons in this story, even though there's questions in my mind. Maybe you don't have any, but I do when I read this text. 
How could this happen? Why did this happen? You know, why did they pick those sons? It just seems odd to me, the entire story. And so there's several questions and lessons. And by the way, every tidbit of Scripture should point us to some truths about God Almighty. Scripture isn't theocentric, or isn't anthropocentric, people-centered. It's theocentric. It's going to teach us, tell us some things about God. And I think there's some really, really clear lessons about God that I want to get to. And just let me just walk through the text with you. Just do verse by verse, and then we'll bring our thoughts about what does this teach us about God as we go through. So let's start. In the very first verse, he's talking about a famine. How bad's the famine? In the first verse, how bad is it? Okay, it's three years lasting, okay? So it's year after year, three years long, which would, it's nationwide. Everybody's affected by it. So it isn't just a little, little tidbit territory. The entire commonwealth is affected by it. The entire nation as a whole. And David, as the representative, he is very concerned about it because it's affecting the economics. It seems that there's the strong possibility that this famine is associated with the idea that the water hasn't fallen. That there hasn't been rain for a period of time. Remember, she is going to guard the bodies until finally rainfall falls. And so when you had drought slash famine, in the Bible days, what did that often indicate to the peoples of the land? If there was a drought, if there was a famine. Okay, God's, God's withholding blessings from them. That God is all of a sudden, they would understand this, that this is a hand of God chastisement. And that would be based upon scriptures where we read that God had told them when you go into the land, if you are to be, if you don't follow me, I might punish you. And the way that I might punish you is I will withhold the what? The early and the latter rains. Well, without the rains, what's going to happen? There's going to be no crops. Without no crops... There's going to be no food. There's going to be a famine. Now, remember these passages. If you will yet for all this not hearken to me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heaven as iron, your earth as brass. Your strength will be spent in vain. Your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. He goes a little bit further. If you will not, if you shall hearken uh, diligently unto me, which I command you to love me with all your heart, soul, I will give you the rain in your land in due season, the first and latter rain, that you may gather in your corn, and I will send grass in your fields to your cattle that you may eat and be full. But if you turn aside, then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land, therefore, will not yield its fruit. So David is understanding that this is some type of judgment that is taking place. And so he immediately, verse 1, he inquires of the Lord, which he prays, and he asks God for direction. It is interesting that he prays for something so big as no rain for three years. But he prays for it, and he's asking God, please give me direction to resolve it. And God says, here's how you're going to resolve it. There has been something has happened. The, this drought, this famine is because... Saul did something during his tenure. That Saul had, had violated something that offended God, offended the Gibeonites. Therefore, you're, you're suffering because of what Saul had done. And nobody has made restitution to those people. And so what happens is he explains that Saul slew the Gibeonites. I already mentioned to you, we don't know when this happened. But we do know this as far as why it happened. You read in the text that Saul did it out of the zeal to the children of Israel. That Saul wanted to wipe out this group of people so as to show pro-Israel you know, 
pride, nationality. What it does is the text tells us he was going to destroy us from remaining in any coast of the land. This is a reversal of the Holocaust that happened last century. That the Holocaust was trying to wipe out what group of people? The Jews. This is Saul doing some type of genocide to wipe out all the Gibeonites and to destroy them from the land. It wasn't just that he killed a few. He was trying to kill all of them and totally annihilate them. So something here was, was happening. Now, some people think it happened in conjunction when Saul went and killed the 84 priests that were in the village of Nob. Remember the story. You remember this, okay? When David first ran from King Saul, he was playing the harp. Saul threw the spear at him, tried to spear him three different occasions. David runs, and when he leaves Saul's capital in Hebron, he runs into the wilderness, but he, nobody's with him. He go, he's hungry. So who does he go to? He goes to the priest who had the tabernacle at the town of Nob. And when he comes in, the priest says, you're David, you're the mighty soldier, why are you here? David doesn't tell him. David doesn't share with him. But David asks, is there some food? And they say, well, we have the food that we priests eat, the table of showbread that is taken off from the day before. We get to eat that, we'll give that to you. And do you remember what else the priest says? David asks, is there any... Yeah, right. He asks, is there any weapon? Remember? And the priest says, yes, we happen to have Goliath's sword. And so they give the Goliath's sword. Well, David takes off, and somebody, Doeg, D-O-E-G, is the one who sees this happen. He runs back to King Saul and says, the priest helped David. They're helping David. And Saul has been trying to get rid of David, trying to kill David. And so he brings the priest back to his court and says, why did you help? And the priest truthfully, honestly says, I didn't know. I didn't know David was a fugitive. I didn't know. But what is Saul's reaction? Do you remember what Saul does? I mean, he says, somebody killed the priest. Killed the priest because they did something that I didn't like them. And Doeg jumps in. I think Doeg's the Edomite, if I recall right. Doeg jumps in and he slays the priest and he goes down to Nob and it says he not only killed the priests who helped David, but they kill all the priests. Do you remember? All their families, their wives, their children, and their servants. Okay? Now, the reason that that might be important is because the Gibeonites were the servants of the priests. Let's go all the way back. Let's do a 400-year jump. Let's go all the way back to Joshua coming into the land. Joshua is coming in, and when they first came in, the very first city that they marched around several times and blew the trumpets, Jericho and the walls. Okay, and then they wiped the people out. The next city they go and attack. Ai. And Achan had, he had taken some of the forbidden loot from the previous city, and he hid it. So what happens when they go to battle at Ai? The first battle, they lose. Some of their men are killed. And they have to rectify the situation. And then they go in and they totally wipe out the city of Ai. And don't take anything. Well, right after that, a group of people came came to Joshua. These people were dressed that looked like they came a long distance. They said 
they came a long distance. They brought some gifts, but everything was dusty and dirty. And they said, we have heard what you have done. Please make a treaty with us. We live a long distance off that we want to have a treaty with you. And Joshua, in the passage says, he did not inquire of the Lord. Okay, Joshua responds by saying, we'll make a treaty with you. Yes, I agree. we will not attack you. We'll leave you alone. Well, only after he makes that promise does the Spirit of the Lord let him know, hey, these people duped you. These people, they live in this territory. They aren't some you know, neighboring region outside of where, where the promise... They live in the promised land. And Joshua goes to them and he says, you lied to me. Now, in modern day, if somebody lied on the contract... Okay, it's nullified. Well, it didn't happen. Because he had made a promise and a vow in the name of the Lord, it was binding. Because he had promised in the name of God. So what happens is that he makes this, he says to him, you lied to us, but because we made a promise to you, we will let you live. However, anybody remember what the however is? You're going to be the servants of the priest. From now on, you're going to live underneath the priest. You will provide wood. You will provide what they need in order to keep the tabernacle. You'll do some of the, some of the woodwork and uh, you know, getting the fire and different stuff. You're going to be their servants. And the Gibeonites said, we're glad to do that. We'll gladly do it because we will. And they, they said, we'll let our generations be the servants to the priest rather than what was the option? Yeah, so they agreed to that, and as a result, now for 400 years, the Gibeonites have been working under the priests. That's why some say when Saul attacked the, the village of Nob and wiped out everybody, that's when he attacked the Gibeonites. But again, I don't know if that's true. That could be the time. that we, we just don't know. But it sounds like the Gibeonites were more spread out than just at the village of Nob by their comments that he tried to destroy us out of the land. So there may be another occasion. But either way, whenever it happened, the point is that Saul broke the oath that the nation's leaders had made with the Gibeonites and it had been in place for 400 years. It's a good thing that people, people in our day never break treaties. Okay, And so Saul broke the treaty. He broke the thing. And God... God was offended, the Gibeonites are offended that Saul violated this treaty that was made and in place for 400 years. So what happens is we, we can keep on in the story, but I want to pause and just point out a couple truths about God so far that we've seen. Truth number one is this. Truth number one is God always keeps his word. God keeps his word. Now in this passage, it's a negative keeping of his word. What I mean by that is God said, if you don't live in a certain way, if you don't live upright and honest, I'm going to punish you by withholding the rain. And it's going to be a chastisement. And that could be extremely difficult. And it was difficult. And it lasted for three years famine. But the reason it was happening, because this is what God said, where God said, I will, I will discipline you because I love you and I want to correct you can God do that? Yeah, in fact, will God keep his word and chasten them that he loves? Yeah, absolutely. God keeps his word. He keeps his word in providing, but he also keeps his word when he is a, a putting out punishment to correct. 
So number one, let's, that the story reveals God keeps his word. It also reveals this. God expects us to keep our word. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, you made that promise a long time ago. No, this was a binding contract. This was a binding oath that God expected his people, even Saul, 400 years later, to keep that promise that had been made to the Gibeonites. How long does God expect you to keep your word? Until you don't feel like it? How long does God expect you to keep the vows that you said, I will be loyal to you until death do us part? How long does God expect you to keep those vows? Until death do us part. Okay, so we have, we have clearly in this text, God keeps his word. He expects us to keep his, our word. But there's a third thought here. He'll show his displeasure with us if we don't keep our word. We're living in a modern day that making political promises is fill in the blank. Is it done for convenience? I mean, in all honesty, do you, honor, do you think the politicians will keep their word? We live in such a society, we don't even think they're going to keep their promises. And yet God says, from my people, when you make a promise, I expect you to keep it. And if you don't, I will chasten you. I will, I will not continue just to bless you and overlook you may overlook it in your politicians, but I'm not overlooking it in your life. Sometimes parents overlook it wrongly with their kids, but God says, I'm not going to do that with my kids. I expect you to keep your word, and when you don't, I may discipline you for it. Keep your word. So we go a little bit further in the story. And the, and the Gibeonites, they ask, they say, we want some type of restitution. This is where I struggle. Okay, and to sit back and say, they asked for the death of seven of Saul's sons. Why seven? I don't know. Okay. Um, you know, why those seven sons were picked, I really don't know. But this I do realize from the text and from other passages. That helps me to understand this text. Maybe it won't for you, but for me this was beneficial. Is David, when he goes and says, what shall I do to make... It's in um, verse 2 or so that we read already. Um, yeah, there it is in verse 3. What shall, wherewith shall I make atonement? It's the word kafar. Kafar means to cover things up, to settle the matter. Okay, we, the same word that's used and translated in the New Testament with that idea of our sins are covered. And so he says, what do I do to make atonement? And isn't it interesting? He lets them, he's the king, but he lets the offended party set the restitution requirements. And so they, their response is, okay, they say, we don't want compensation monetarily, but we're asking for the lives of seven of his sons. And we look and say, what? But, you know, when we look at this, let's put it in its historical context. Were they asking for something that fit Old Testament law? Were they? Why do you say yes? What's that? There you got it. Okay, what they're asking for, remember, this is not a mob vengeance. They are not revolting. They are servants who have been offended, and they have done nothing. They have not sought revenge themselves. They are servants who are saying, we are going to let the law of the land, 
the people in charge take care of making restitution, and God is going. We're going to let God settle this, bring this up, and God will be our vengeance is mine, saying, saith the Lord. God will be the one who will take care of this. They've learned Jewish Jewish religion, Jewish belief system in these four hundred years working with the priests that they need to just let it in the hands of the Lord, which is happening, and the Lord's dealing with it. And by asking for the life of others, that is not contrary to the Old Testament law. We go all the way back to Genesis, that if somebody took a life, their life shall be taken. That idea of capital punishment. We go into the Old Testament where you have Lex Telianus. Lex Telianus is the idea, just reciprocation. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth which permeates the Old Testament legal system when you look at verses like this. You shall give life for eye, life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, jump again. You shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. He that kills a beast shall make it good, beast for beast. If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He that kills a man, he shall be put to death. So what they're asking for, some form of capital punishment, is very legit. Okay, it's, it's totally appropriate. It fits the Old Testament legal system. And, and we get this discussion that in modern day, well, if you practice capital punishment, you're doing violence and you're just propagating violence. So by doing, by taking somebody's life, and we are so much more civilized today, we are so much more advanced. We have learned that we will not do a violence to somebody who's a violent person that took a life because then we're just promoting violence. I don't think that's true. I just don't. And as, as I read, I understand that the, the Bible, Old Testament, even in New Testament, the idea that government has the sword to protect the innocent and to punish the evildoers. And in my mind, the knowledge of equal justice for a crime like murder... It, 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 it deflects the idea of mob rule. It deflects the idea of vengeance rule. It puts the bonus upon the government, upon the community, to make sure that we take care of criminal activity and punish it appropriately. In fact, capital punishment, you can't get away from this. If somebody is a murderer and capital punishment is enacted, they aren't going to murder again. It is a deterrent to the one who is guilty and who has a propensity possibly to do that. Capital punishment can be a deterrent to other people. Okay? If there's punishment... I mean, uh, seriously, do we have a crisis right now with criminal activity? Okay. What is propagating a lot of it? People don't fear the legal system. Why not? Because they've heard the statements, we're not going to prosecute... And they've seen we're not going to prosecute. So when it comes to this idea of, okay, if somebody commits murder, there is a real reality that says, and statistically true, that when states have carried out capital punishment, even in modern era of time, crimes went down for the, the several months following each one of those. Now, here's, here's what you're going to read. If you do any more study on this and just go on the Internet, here's the articles you're going to read. You will read comments that murder rates are the same in states with death sentences as states without death sentences. And statistically, that's true. 
But they, they're not dealing with the real question. The real question isn't which state has a death penalty. The question is which state enacts it. Does that make a difference? Yes, absolutely. But they don't deal with that in these, in these studies that say, see, it, it makes no difference. Well, sure it makes no difference if you don't enact the punishment. Anyway, that's a whole other topic that we can get on. They were not doing a vicious act. This was The Gibeonites are not coming out bloodthirsty. In fact, if you read the text, as odd as it is to us in 2022, here's what the text points out. It says, they did this unto the Lord. What's that mean? What's it mean they did it unto the Lord? I think the sense of that idea is that they understand that God has laws. And God's enacting rules. And sometimes we aren't excited to implement God's rules. Let me ask you as a parent. Okay. As a parent, and you're raising your kids, what does God tell you to do if your children are doing wrong? You need to correct them. Might it include some type of chastisement? Yes. Did you love it? Yeah. I get to get after the kids. If you had that attitude you're probably going to end up in jail, okay? And rightfully so. But as a parent, why did you do this? And I don't mean this, I don't mean this in a, a real weird way, but in my mind, and in our mind, we weren't doing this for any other reason, but as unto the Lord. This is our responsibility according to what God told us to do as parents. This was... This was our spiritual ministry to our kids. That sounds weird, but a child left to himself, what happens? Yeah. And the Bible tells you that if you don't correct your child, he may end up just in, in you know, bring you, break your heart. He may end up in, you know, delving into areas that he could end up in Sheol. So in an odd way, our correction at times isn't something that we do with delight, but we do because this is our responsibility. Make sense? Okay. As a community, do we delight in suspending somebody's life who's committed murder? No. Why would any of us rejoice and say, yay, yay, yay? That person, probably, if they're executed, they ended up where? In hell. There's nothing joyful about but it's duty duty before the Lord. And so here they are, they're saying, we're going to do this because we understand that this is the duty before the Lord. The question that comes up is, why the sons? And you still have a question like, but why Saul's sons? I I think there's a possible answer here that fits all the scripture together. That makes sense to me. Okay, we know that David said, I'm not going to pick Mephibosheth because I've made a promise and God expects me to keep my word. So I can't do this to Mephibosheth. So what he does is he picks some of the other descendants. Now I want to remind you that there are few descendants left of Saul's anymore. How do we know that? Because when David said, is there any descendants of the household of Saul and Jonathan, they went on a hunt. And then they told him about Mephibosheth. So David isn't aware of lots of sons, but there are some that he's aware of. Okay, and so when he does, he goes and chooses Armoni and a different Mephibosheth. They are the direct descendants of Saul through his concubine Rizpah, who is already mentioned in the part of the story. 
Then he selects other, other sons. These aren't sons directly, but they are sons by the second generation. Today we would call them grandsons. And in your text, some of you have footnotes that you will have Mirab mentioned and you will have Michael mentioned, or Michael, that's the way I'm just saying it for sake. And anybody remember who those girls are? Mirab is the oldest daughter of King Saul. She was promised to David when David slew Goliath. But Saul reneged on his word and gave her to this gentleman by the name of Adriel. Together they had five boys. But then the passage says that Michal raised them for Adriel. There are in the Old Testament Masoretic texts, there are footnotes that, that indicate, but we don't know because there are additional texts. But it, it suggests that, that Mirab died early and Michal, who was childless. Remember, she was David's wife. She was the one, the daughter given. And because she had, she had ridiculed David for his worship, what had happened is she was barren had no children her entire life. So when her sister dies, she becomes the proxy mother to these boys. That's the explanation of this text. And so what happens here is he picks those children, those five sons of Adriel and Merib, and some people accuse David. Right away they say David was vindictive. David was getting back at those girls, the one that was promised to him, but he got jilted. Michael, who treated David wrong, so he's going after them. Um, We don't know exactly why David picked those people, but this much I do know. David isn't the one that initiated this whole thing. David wasn't a... I don't sense anything where David is vengefully seeking to wipe out that family. He didn't initiate this. This was thrown on him. As well, there's very few descendants left... And based on the comments in Deuteronomy that a father may not suffer for the, uh, the sins of a child, I think there's another possibility here, a very likely possibility, that when Saul went after the Gibeonites, some of these boys were involved as well. Okay, Because in the text, it makes the comment, it says, for Saul and his bloody house... So what happens here in the story is that all of a sudden, years later, there's this punishment that's meted out. And so you have in the story that they're hanged, and we mentioned that it's probably a crucifixion that they're hanged in that idea because, you know, cursed, really, really a situation where you show disdain because of what's happening. Well, the Gibeonites carried out Jewish execution that allowed for the hanging on the cross in a way of showing disdain. And as well, according to Deuteronomy, if somebody was hung this way, their body had to be taken down before the sun went down, but not in this case. In this case, the bodies seemed to be hung there on the cross for several days, even though they all died together because... There she is. Rizpah is protecting them, and she protects them days, weeks. Come on in, guys. She protects for an extended period of time until something happens. She is out there protecting the bodies until the water falls from heaven, which would indicate what? Everything's justified. Everything's done. It's all settled before God. It's all taken care of. And then David, what David does is David then... He uh, responds by showing great respect. 
What David does is he marches down, he gets not only their bodies, but he gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he takes them all down to their hometown to Kish's funeral site, where they're buried in the, in the graveside of the sepulcher of their grandfather, great-grandfather. And so David's showing great delight in them. So this whole story just wraps up. There's an act of honor, and David ends. We made these observations. God always keeps his word. Okay, we made this observation. God expects us to keep his word. We made this observation. That as well, and by the way, all these verses, we could just, how it is so important for you to keep your word, what you say, a vow that you make, the promises that you make, that you are an honest person, that you keep the promises that you make. And as you make those promises, and they've made them, I ask these questions of me, I ask them of you, how are you doing with your marriage vows? God expects you to keep them. Let's bring all of us in. When you got baptized and said you were going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, I am dying to the old life, I'm going to live anew. How are you doing with that vow? Are you keeping your word there? How about keeping your word when some of you, you stood here or at other churches and you dedicated your children, that you were going to raise them for the glory of the Lord? How are you doing with that one? Are you following through on the vow? The promises that you made to your parents, the promises you made to your kids, the promises that you made to other relatives. What about when you promise somebody at work that you're going to be there at such and such a time? What about when you tell a friend, I'm going to do this? What about when somebody comes to you? And they, they ask you to, to pray for them. And you say, I'm going to pray for you. You've given your word. Do you keep your word? How about when that idea of, of just when you sign your name and say, I will pay this. Do you pay when you said you would pay? That's a contract. You said you would be paying the, paying the debt back. Are you keeping your word? God expects us to keep his, your word. He keeps his, and if we don't, there's a discipline for it. But let's add this one, okay? We said that God shows his displeasure. We already commented that God chastened the land, and God was not entreated until after it was rectified, which leads me to this most important truth. God restores his favor once we make things right. God restores favor. What happened? After the funeral, after everything is rectified, after the sons, their lives are there, it says that the atonement was made, it was satisfied. After that, God was entreated for the land. Do you know what the Hebrew says? Okay, with that concept, it says, God answered prayers. God answered prayers. So, as Scripture says, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But if I make things right with the Lord, I'm restored once again. Now, this story has all kinds of different questions, and some of you may react to the story, but can I give you a parallel to this story that we celebrate this evening? The parallel is this. When this passes, it raises all kinds of questions. This is what God has done for you. This story is talking about us doing something that offended, and an offering, a kafar, had to be made, a covering for that. You and I in our sin have, have absolutely offended God. And we come and say, God, what do we do to make restitution? And God says there needs to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. I am so glad that God accepted the shed blood of Jesus Christ in my stead. 
that God gave His Son. His Son, who is totally innocent. He gave Him to provide a kafar for my sins. So that we are covered by it. And i got to tell you, I don't understand why Christ would do it. There are questions other than He loves us. And that raises the question, why would you love me? But I'm sure glad He did. I'm sure glad that the Lord made the sacrifice. And as a result, we have restored fellowship. That's what we're celebrating these next few minutes. Is that Jesus shed his, his blood. That he gave his life so that we can have fellowship with God in this life and in the next.